Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. It's Monday, March 27th, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. Happy birthday, Mama. Kishore is away this week exploring the Large Hadron Collider in Switzerland. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds, on Twitter at Inquiring Show, and on Facebook. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. Is there a project that you've had on the back burner for a while that you're really passionate about, but you just can't seem to make any headway on it? Every time I finish one big project, I find myself in a period of sometimes months or even up to a year trying to figure out how I'm going to make progress on the next big thing. My last big project was a course for The Great Courses called Brain Myths Exploded. And we've wrapped that up at the end of last year, and now I've been treading water a little bit. And I've wondered, why is it that even when I have this time to devote to the next big thing, I tend to do all the other things first? So in order to understand that a little bit better, I wanted to talk to an expert in motivation. Dan Ariely has a PhD both in cognitive psychology and in business administration. He's the James Duke Professor of Psychology and Behavioral Economics at Duke University, but he's perhaps best known for his TED Talk, which has been watched over 7.8 million times. Actually, that's more than one talk. He's the author of two best-selling books, Predictably Irrational and The Upside of Irrationality, as well as The Honest Truth About Dishonesty. And I think he's the founder of possibly the most interestingly named center, and that is the Center for Advanced Hindsight. So this week on the show, we're going to talk to Dan about what it is that motivates us. So with that, let's take a short break and we'll be back with my interview with Dan Ariely. Before we pop into the interview, I just want to let you know about another podcast that I recently launched called Cadence, What Music Tells Us About the Mind, an exploration of two of my favorite topics, neuroscience and music. You can find it on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts. Support for this podcast comes from Toyota and their new 2017 Highlander. If you're like me, when the weekend comes, you don't want to just sit around the house. You want to get out with the family, explore new places and try new things. Maybe check out a science museum, hit a festival, or just head out for a hike in nature. The new Toyota Highlander is the perfect vehicle for discovery. It starts on the outside with its sleek design and aggressive new front grille that say, you've got an attitude for adventure. Its improved powertrain makes it more fun to drive and more fuel efficient than ever. One of my favorite features is driver easy speak, which lets you broadcast what you say to the rear seats so your passengers can hear you. Doesn't mean they're listen, but at least they can hear you. So navigate to your nearest Toyota dealer or toyota.com and see why there's always more to discover in the new 2017 Highlander. 
Welcome to Inquiring Minds, Dan Ariely. Nice to be here. Good morning. So it's March, and a lot of us have made New Year's resolutions that are long forgotten. <laughs> so what is it that allows our motivation to slip so quickly in the first couple of months of the year when it, it seems at the beginning of the year we're you know ripe to go? Yeah, so as you probably expect, it's a phenomena that has lots of possible uh, reasons for it. Uh, actually, lots of lots of things are working against us. So one thing, if you just even start this and you say, why New Year? Like, what happens in New Year? Why isn't like the first Wednesday on in April, right? So what happens in New Year is we have this perception that there's a chance for a new beginning. Kind of think about the the Catholic confession like like thing where you can say basically I'm opening a new page. I've done all kinds of terrible things before. But now I can I can start fresh, and it's actually surprising that it works even a little bit, right? Because even a little bit it uh, actually changes how we how we behave. So that's that's the first thing. It's kind of nice that it has this perception of new beginning, and and it changes things a little bit. The the problem is that habits that we have are very hard to break. If you think about something like exercising, you can have the willpower and determination to do it. But if you haven't done it for a while and it did not become part of your routine, if you don't have friends in the gym, if you're not set up for this, it's going to go away. If you have a very routinized way in which you go out to eat with friends or what, whatever you cook at home, it's very hard to make, to make those, those changes. So that's the second thing. Another thing that is actually really sad is that those changes take a long time. So we recently did some studies trying to understand what people's intuitions are on how quickly uh, will changes to our uh, health should should uh, show up. So let me ask you the question. So imagine that uh, this weekend you're going to have a slightly crazy weekend. You're going to eat over Friday, Saturday, Sunday, 7,000 extra calories. <laughs> I know it sounds like a lot, but you know. I think a couple of visits to the Cheesecake Factory are going to do it. Um, when should you expect to, to see the extra weight, right? And people basically expect you to see it on Monday or Tuesday. Right? We have kind of a deterministic, quick model of our body that we say, hey, if we have something uh, that we've done good, we should see the effect immediately. If we have something bad, we should see the negative effect very quickly. And it's true, by the way, not, for, not just for weight. It's true for cholesterol medications and all kinds of other things. The problem is that our body is a biological machine that doesn't react that quickly and certainly doesn't react in a deterministic way. So you could have a day that you're really good and your weight goes up, a day that you're really bad, your weight goes down. But also, it takes a while to get things uh, going. So, so what happened is that we start a diet or we start exercising and we expect to see uh, the results very quickly, but we don't. And that's just a, a way to experience heartbreak. So that's another kind of element that happens. And, and then, you know, there are many more, but another one that I, I find particularly interesting is something called the what the hell effect, right? So the what the hell effect is this idea that when people have a strict diet, the moment that they violate it, they say, what the hell, today I'm not a dieter, let me get a milkshake and a, and a burger, right? So you start the day, you say to yourself, I want to be on a diet today, then you have a muffin, and then you say, I'm not a dieter. So what happened is that we, 
we define ourselves, we have a definition of ourselves. And the moment that we violate that definition, we, we can't get kind of joy from our personality, right? You can't say, oh, I'm a dieter. That's a good thing. So you say, if I'm not a dieter, uh, why should I diet? Right. So, so what happened is that when we have good intentions, if we frame them in very strict ways uh, and we fail, we create some implication for us as individuals, and then we're more likely to continue uh, failing. So, so there's one interesting lesson there, which is to say, let's define our criteria not so strictly. Because you see, if you define your criteria in a very strict way, yes, it might push you to, to try very hard to adhere to it, but if you fail, it could really backfire. So, so, so defining it in less, less strict terms is important. And then, and then actually one more thing that is just general, you know, one of the biggest kind of debates between psychology and economics is whether you should reward the process or reward the outcome. So imagine that you have somebody who is a diabetic patient. And you could say, hey, you know, we have this wonderful measure for diabetes load. It's called A1C. Why don't you, as the diabetes uh, patient, you reduce your A1C and I will pay you, you know, for reducing that number. And, and the theory under something like this is to say you as the individual are best suited uh, to figure out What's the best way to, to reduce your weight? You could, you could do a combination of um, eating differently, exercising, taking your medication on time, and, and you will be able to titrate those and to figure out the best possible solution. That's, that's the economics approach. The psychological approach is to say, you know what? It's really, really, really difficult to find out the right combination of those things. And left to your own accord, you're probably never going to find it. So instead, why don't we just ask you to control the things that are easy for you to control. Why don't we just ask you to eat less, take your medication and exercise. And yes, it's not going to be optimal, but at least you'll have some rules for behavior that you could follow. And that's the more effective approach, ultimately? Much, much more, much more. Because, because you see, if you only look at the dependent measure, if you look at the outcome all the time, and you, you will have these confusing things that sometimes say, oh, you know, I just exercised and my A1C went up. Or I just ate cheesecake and it went down. So you could have um, you could have all these confusing feedback. And does the same research or, or reasoning apply when someone is trying to say build a new company or complete that novel that they've been working on uh, and so on? And sort of these kind of work related, although not directly the thing that makes uh, you a lot of money, but that project that you've always wanted to do that somehow never seems to get done. Absolutely. So, so if you think about this idea that what we can control is the input, what we put into something. The output is, you know, statistically under our control, but all kinds of other things happen. Like you could have a day in which it's hard for you to get going. You could have a day in which you're not that energetic or creative or productive. Now, on those days, you could still make progress. And you ha if you have a rule that says, you know what? Just sit and write for an hour. You'll make a lot of progress. But, but if you just depend on the output, then you would say to yourself, let me wait for those days in which I'm incredibly creative and thoughtful and productive. Well, there, there are very few days like that a year. So you end up not doing 
not doing much. Um, I, I'll tell you something else in this in this regard. We we are now uh, starting a new project on trying to kind of take some of those principles and put them into into weight to help people figure out their weight. And I'll tell you kind of uh, what what are the principles at work and how do we decide to combine them. So the principles that we know are the following. Uh, the first thing is that if you stand on a scale every morning, it's a good thing. If you stand in the evening, not not as good. And, <laughs> That's true. And the reason it's good to stand in the morning, it's it's because it reminds you of your commitment to health, right? So you basically kind of remind yourself, and then the next few hours you'll eat a bit less. So that's principle number one. Principle number two is this idea of fluctuations. So weight fluctuates a lot, maybe by three pounds a day, and and that's very annoying, right? And in in behavioral economics, there's this principle called loss aversion, and loss aversion is the idea that we hate losing more than we enjoy gaining. With weight, of course, it's gain aversion. It's the opposite, right? But but days in which you gain weight are really miserable. Days that you lose weight are a little happy, but but the misery is higher than the happiness. So what people do is they stop weighing themselves. And then finally, there's this literature that, 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 that goes under the name multiple Q probability learning. But the important thing in that literature is that when the world around us is kind of random, and we don't understand the relationship between cause and effect, we, we basically get very confused and very demotivated. So, you know, when, when your weight goes up and down in a way that is not related to what you did yesterday, it's just, just very confusing and we don't know what to do. If, if the world was simple, you, want to, you go into a room, you flip the switch and the lights turn on, you learn very quickly that's what's going on. But if it turns on 55% of the time, it's very hard to figure out what, what's really going on. And, and weight is very much like that. So what we decided to do was to separate the scale, the measurement, from the outcome. So we said, look, stepping on the scale is a good thing. Let's make people a scale that they want to step on. That the scale will just tell you, congratulations, you stepped on me. You've done the right thing, right? Because, because that's it. So we have a scale with no display that only gives people positive feedback for stepping on it. And then we said the other thing we want to do is we want to give people measurement in units that make sense. And we said pounds, we're not sure, make sense. And decimal pounds certainly don't make sense. If I moved from 164.1 to 164.3, it's probably just because, you know, I brushed my teeth differently or I peed a little bit less. It has nothing to do with anything. But if I see those numbers, I might try to attribute them to all kinds of things. So we said, let's make the units of measurement something more sensible that is only on a, on a five-point scale. Let's celebrate, first of all, when people are just the same. And let's say slightly worse, slightly better, much worse, much better. And that's about all the level of granularity that people can handle with, with weight because of the natural fluctuation of it. And then the final thing that we're doing with this, with this project is that we give this five-point scale on an app, and once you open the scale, we have a lot of decision-making tricks for how to get people to eat better. Uh, you know, we have we know that if you have a cereal on the countertop, you'll eat more cereal. If you have fruit, you'll have more fruit. If healthy things are at eye level, when you open the refrigerator, you'll eat those. If you keep the healthy things in the opaque drawer in the bottom, you'll eat those. So we have we have lots of things that we know. Uh, that, that could actually get people to behave uh, better. Oh, and, and one more uh, fun thing. 
so if you're a woman and during your menstrual cycle you retain some water, if you measure your weight in pounds, the scale would tell you that you increase your weight. But have you really increased your weight? Not really. You probably should not feel bad when you retain water and you should not feel good from, from your activity when, when you lose that. Right? So, but, but if the moment you make your representation, not in terms of pounds, but in terms of kind of the underlying measure of health as it relates to your, to your weight, now you can uh, d- do those things more directly and not punish people or not reward them when they either retain water or lose that. And I imagine this kind of approach has a lot of other applications, you know, related to the quantified self movement. You know, we have so many different ways of measuring things, the steps we take and, you know, how many times we breathe in an hour. We have all kinds of apps, our, our sleep quality. And you're right that sometimes those the actual numbers are really meaningless particularly if you wear a, a number of different wearables and they count your steps, you'll notice a pretty big fluctuation, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, But, but the steps, you know, the steps is the, is the one that makes the most sense because let's say it's accurate. That's a separate issue. But let's say it's accurate. At least it's under your control, mm-hmm. right? But a lot of other things, like one of the craziest one is blood pressure. But when blood pressure fluctuates greatly over the day, and sadly, it gets extra high for some people when they're in the doctor's office actually measuring <laughs> their blood pressure. So, but, but, you know, it's also more serious than that. I talked to some oncologists about uh, PSA. I'm at the age that, and, you know, it's a, it's a very, very noisy measure. And let's say your number is, you know, 3.04, and one day it goes up to 3.1. And, you know, it's a meaningless, like the standard deviation is one. It's a meaningless uh, change that nobody can tell you anything, but, but it's so clear and it sits there on the form and it has decimals and it's very, very hard for people to ignore it. So with the, this notion of digital measurements, we have more and more accurate measurements that it's true they're more accurate at, the, at that moment. But because we don't understand randomness and variance so well, we over-extrapolate from those measurements. Now, for statistical tool, like if we do a statistical study, I want to give the tool the most, the highest resolution of data. But for us as people, with very sparse data, it's it's a recipe for bad behavior. Yeah, it, you know, it, it always amazes me too that you get a physical maybe once a year, and maybe you get some blood tests, and that's just a snapshot of one hour of three hundred and sixty-five days. And so it does. It's not that meaningful on a lot of the different measures, and yet this idea of like, well, actually, maybe you should get your blood tested in a, you know, if if, if really there was an easy way to do it with just a pinprick, and you could send it out, you could do it once a month, you know, the first of every month, and then you'd get a much better idea of your overall health. Yeah, and and the ideal, of course, would be that you would not report it to people every time that they take it, right? Because even though it's it's more data. It could still create superstition. You know, you know how, you know, I'm not, I'm not a big sports guy, but you know, a lot of these athletes develop superstition, right? It, like two games, you didn't change your underwear, um, and you did well. The, the, the easy connection for the brain is to say what, what, what has happened here, and even though it's a sample of two, it must be the underwear that are helping me to, to hit well. And the same thing could happen with small samples to all of us, right? You have, you have two. You know, 
twice you made you did 10 push-ups before you uh, gave your blood sample or you did it you know on on a sunny day or the day before that you you drank something whatever it is we are so susceptible to make these deterministic connections with small samples that that this world of saying you know what we don't know anything yet just wait for a while it's just not natural for us and the flip side of this though is that it can be relatively easy to motivate someone to do something pretty boring if somehow they find it meaningful yes <laughs> yeah so tell us a little bit about the bionicles yes. study so um yeah so so we've you know maybe because we're uh, university professors and students we we try to find out how to motivate people to do very boring tedious things um so so that I'll tell you about two experiments on this. Uh, the first one is this study on motivation with bionicles. And we got people to uh, build bionicles one after the other. And we gave them less money for each the, for the next one every time. So what's called a diminishing pay wage. Let's just tell the, the people what a bionicle is. People don't know what a bionicle is. A bionicle <laughs> is an amazing invention by Lego. It's, it's a movable... A robot that is kind of a space fighting machine. Unbelievable. Everybody should have at least one of those. Anyway, it's it's a, it's a toy for kids. I think the average age is like 10 to 8, 8 to 12. I think that's the, that's the age. And people came to the lab and we said, hey, would you like to build a Bionicle? We'll give you $3 for the first one. And if they said yes, we gave them the first Bionicle. They built it. When they finished, we said, hey, would you like to build another one for 270 and then if they finished it and want another one, another one for 240 to 10 and, and so on. So basically, uh, the, the, how much we pay them went down and down and down. And the question was, at what point will they say, oh, I had enough. I don't want to build anymore. Right. And that's kind of the reservation uh, price. And in the first condition, people build those exactly as I described. Every time they finished one, we put it under the table and we told them that when they finish all the bionicles and their study, we will disassemble them, put them back in the boxes for the next participant. And that condition we call the meaningful condition. And it's not very meaningful, but it's meaningful compared to the next one. In the, in the second condition, which we call the Sisyphic condition, we didn't tell the participants, but we called it uh, uh, internally that name. Um, this was uh, uh, called after Sisyphus. If, if you remember the story of Sisyphus, he was punished by the gods to push a rock up a big hill. And every time, just before he got to the end, the rock would uh, basically roll back all the way to the beginning and he had to start again. And if you think about this, it's kind of the definition of futility. You do the same thing over and over and over, nothing changed, there's never a sense of progress. And it's like it's like email. <laughs> email, I think email, I think email is a little bit better because at least it's new email. You feel there's progress. <laughs> Right. So, so imagine that Sisyphus pushed pushed the rock up multiple hills. There was like an infinite number of hills, and he would just push it the next one, the next one. There would still be a, a sense of progress. Whereas this idea of the same hill over and over, I think it kind of takes all the elements of infutility and puts them together. So, in the second condition, people build the first robot, first bionicle. When they finished, we took it back. We said, "Would you like to build another one?" If they say yes, we gave them the next one, and then. As they were building the second one, we were taking the pieces of the first one apart at, at the same time. <laughs> and then when they finished the second one, we already finished disassembled the first one. We asked them, would you like to build the third one for 30 cents less? And if they said yes, we gave them back the first one, the one that they built and we broke. 
and that's the place where, where you say to yourself, like, why am I doing this? Right? <laughs> I just finished doing it. You just broke it in front of my eyes. I'm doing it again. And, and we kept on recycling those two bionicles over and over and over. And a couple of things happened in this experiment. First of all, people stopped much faster, which you might expect. The, the second thing is that we looked at the correlation between how much people loved Legos naturally. You know, some people are Lego lovers, some people are not. And we wanted to see how much this correlated, how much your love of Lego correlated with, with your persistence in the task. And you can imagine that if you love Lego, you would go longer in this task for less money because you derive more joy from it. And if you don't love Lego, not so much. And in the regular condition, we found a really nice correlation between the two people who love Legos persisted more. In the specific condition, the correlation was zero, which basically says that somehow we, we suck the joy out, out of this, of the task. The people that had an internal motivation to Lego did not do any more than people that did not do internal motivation. We somehow got them motivated by money, you know, because we paid them, but there was nothing additional from enjoyment of the task. And then the last thing that happened was we, we showed we showed this, uh, we described this experiment to a group of um, MBAs from Stanford, and we said, what do you predict the results would be? How many bionicles would people build here, and how many bionicles would people build here? And they predicted that the meaningful condition would create more bionicles than the specific one, but they dramatically underestimated the effect. They thought that meaning is important, but they didn't understand how important uh, it is. We did another study related to this. Um, and this study had the same kind of procedure, also diminishing a uh, pay wage, paying people more for the first, second, and third. But this was not this was not bionicles. These were pieces of paper. We gave people a piece of paper. We said there are random letters scattered here. Find pairs of letters that are identical that are next to each other. And when you finish the first sheet of paper, we'll give you the next one for three cents less and the next one for three cents less and so on until you had enough. And now we had three conditions. In the first one, which we call the acknowledge condition, uh, people wrote the name on the sheet of paper. They did the task. When they finished, they gave it to the research assistant who kind of scanned it with their eyes from top to bottom and then said, aha, uh -huh, and put it on a big pile of paper. And then said, would you like another one? And kept on going. In the second condition, it, it started the same way. People did not write their name, but when they handed the sheet of paper, the research assistant did not look at it. They not looked at it, not scan it with their eyes, did not say, aha. They just took it and put it on a pile of paper. We call this the ignored condition. And the third condition, every time this participant handed them a piece of paper, they took it and directly put it through a shredder. <laughs> now, first of all, of course, in the last two conditions, people could lie, right? They could work less and get paid, but, but people didn't. Um, people worked the most in the first condition, the least in the shredder condition. But the reason we, we did this experiment is to find out the, what does the ignored condition falls. It's going to be somewhere between the two, but where will it fall? And the answer was that it fell basically almost as bad as the shredder condition. And, and what that suggests is, you know, that if you want to really demotivate people, shredders are the way to go. Um, there's no substitution for a good shredder, but it also suggests that w simply by not acknowledging people, we get almost all the way there, right? And think about what a terrible thing it is, right? I, I think that you go around in life and there's so much lack of acknowledgement. There's so much uh, lack of giving, giving people credit and thanks and so on 
and it's incredibly demotivating. And the good news, of course, is we could do the opposite, right? You can say, my goodness, just looking at something and saying, aha, has a huge contribution to people's motivation. Why don't we do it more? Yeah, it's it's an amazing finding. And it's one that I think, as you said, can touch us in so many different ways. I mean, even from, you know, staying at a friend's place when you're visiting their city, city and sending them a thank you card versus not doing anything to all kinds of ways in which we try to get our children to behave better <laughs> um, without necessarily, you know, resorting to overt bribery. But I think the, the one thing that struck me the most about, you know, hearing about those studies is how our workplace environment sometimes is built to, you know, exactly do the opposite thing that make people feel as if they are replaceable as a way of trying to tell them, hey, you know, at any moment I can replace you. So you better do a good job. Whereas the exact opposite seems like what your research shows is, is more effective. Yeah, and I don't think people are doing replaceable for the replaceability sake. I don't think anybody says, oh, if people only thought they could be replaced at any moment, they would be much happier. <laughs> but I think we do all kinds of things for efficiency. So, you know, this idea that people can move quickly between teams and cubicles are all the same. And, you know, we get people to put their name on, on the cubicle with a Velcro thing or even a slider, right? It takes only two seconds to replace who was there. Um, so, so I think we do lots of things in the name of efficiency uh, because we think about people as, as robots doing work and not as, as highly potentially motivated people that can also be demotivated. And... You know, if we motivation is one of those things that I think everybody gets to benefit from them. It's a true uh, free lunch, right? That you could say, imagine two two workplaces. In one of them, people are motivated. In one of them, are not. The place where people are motivated, people say thank you, buy them a gift, and so on from time to time. Everybody's happier and they're more productive. The place where they're not as motivated, they're less productive, and and they are suffering at work. And there are two kind of components. The first one is to look at all the things that we're doing unintentionally to kill motivation and just stop doing those. And then the second thing, of course, is to think about all the ways in which would, you could increase motivation and, and help it and uh, build build that up. And lots of places just don't think about this. And instead, they bombard people with procedures and bureaucracies and uh, meaningless steps that just suck the joy out of life. And in Silicon Valley, especially you know, where, close to where I live, there's a sense that, well, if you just provide a lot of perks, you know, if there are smarties in the office or a ping pong table, you know, that's going to lead to more productivity. But it sounds from your research that actually if you provide work that people find meaningful, that they don't just feel like their bionicles are going to be, you know, taken apart in front of their face, that that could be much more effective. Yeah, you know, ping pong tables are visible and it, they, they have some advantages there. Uh, but but there's no question that when somebody thinks about what they're doing, but whether it's it's meaningful, there's no question that the commitment to the team and feeling appreciation and feeling a sense of uh, progression and so on is incredibly important. And and again, we have this kind of funny funny notion of happiness. You know, in the American Constitution, there's this idea that the right to pursue happiness, not in the Constitution, but there's this right to the right to pursue happiness. And the question is, you know, what what kind of happiness do we have in mind? 
and I think that we have kind of two types of happiness and, and sometimes we, we think about the first but not the second. And the first type of happiness is, you know, sitting on a beach drinking mojito or watching Seinfeld or, you know, what's the, the, the Silicon Valley, the, the, the HBO show. Um, and, and we think that that's happiness. And on the other hand, we think that uh, pain and so on is, is, is misery. But if you look at a lot of things that people strive for, like you would certainly not want a life of sitting on the sofa watching these sitcoms. And if you look at the kind of things that people do, it's running marathons, you know, and starting companies and doing things that are difficult and complex and painful. And if you look at marathon, for example, there's no single second there that you say, I feel more pleasure now than watching YouTube clips. But but the totality of the experience, even though not a single second is joyful, the totality gives you a sense of meaning and accomplishment and progress and that you conquered something and ability and skill and so on. And those are the things that truly motivate people to do lots of things. And those are the things we need to create more of. Yeah, I really like recently I read that, you know, you shouldn't think about what will make you happy, but what kind of suffer suffering you're willing to put up with. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm not sure. Uh, you know, it's, it's interesting. I'm not sure that's the right framing. I think I think the issue is to say, not what would make me happy tonight. I think the issue is to say, what would make me feel that I've done what I want to do at the end of a month, a year, a decade, right? Because the, the, the issue with the pursuing the simple type of happiness, happiness type one, is that it's positive on a short scale, but it's not positive on a long scale. Well, that's excellent advice. And thank you for being on Inquiring Minds, Dan Ariely. My pleasure. So that's it for another episode. I hope you got some motivating advice. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And we'd also like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially David Noel, Kyle Raihala, Jonathan Worsley, Yushi Lin, Eric Clark, John Kirk, Jordan Millar, Herring Chen, Sean Johnson, and Nick Cadillac. You can visit our website at inquiringshow.tumblr.com and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. You can also find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and Facebook and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. Inquiring Minds is produced by highly motivated Adam Isaac in cooperation with The Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration and partnership with many media outlets. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. And I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. You can find me on Twitter at Indrevis. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.